Hello, everyone, and welcome to the City and Crumpets podcast. I'm Hikmat Jamal here, sitting with today's guest Sean McAuliffe. Sean is a columnist for the Toronto Star, co-founder of Spacing Magazine, author of four books, most recently Frontier City, and instructor at the University of Toronto. He is passionate about urban issues in the city. Hello, Sean. How are you? Hi. Uh, good. How's it going? I'm good. 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 Uh, you know, with you know everything's been. Uh, with the coronavirus hit in March, um, and I know it might get a bit tedious, everyone talking about the coronavirus all the time, uh, but when it did hit in March, in Toronto in particular, uh, things started falling one by one, you know, with the uh, schools, uh, graduations, um, the NBA, uh, you know, just the important things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but uh, in all seriousness, on, on May 8th, um, Sidewalk Labs cancelled their Toronto Quayside uh, Waterfront Project. Um, and for starters, for those of us who might not know, um, what is Sidewalk Labs? Uh, Sidewalk Labs is a, um, they were a subsidiary of Google, um, so sometimes they're called Google Sidewalk. Um, but Sidewalk was a, a company that Google set up to look into, uh, I guess, urban planning, um, you know, city building, uh, for lack of a better term. Um, they, uh, and they had a real kind of smart city, I guess, um, bent to it. And then the first major testing ground um, that they, they're based in New York, but the first place that they sort of landed on was Toronto's waterfront. Um, a relatively small, compared to the rest of waterfront, uh, parcel of land, yet undeveloped, um, post-industrial, um, and with a deal that they made with um, Waterfront Toronto, the organization that kind of oversees waterfront development, um, we're able to plan to use it sort of as like a testing uh, sandbox, testing case um, for a lot of the stuff that they've been working on. Um, and they do work on some, they, you know, they've, they've got some interesting folks working for them and, you know, they came up with all kinds of ideas, pie in the sky things that kind of, probably will never actually be. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was interesting to see that they were given up this amount of space to do it. And Toronto um, was the uh, the place they focused on. Okay. Um, and this was in the works for how long? Because it's been in the news for quite a while. Uh, roughly how, yeah. how long has it been since? I think it was about two or three years, maybe yeah. two years. Again, I forget exactly when mm-hmm. you know the first announcement um, came in. It did cause like a huge ripple. I mean, I remember you know follow a few techie people in California and elsewhere on um, Twitter and other social media, and they were all a buzz that oh look, their sidewalks going to Toronto. And I think um, maybe before some Toronto people and possibly me included um, thought this was thought it was a big deal. Other people thought it was a big deal for good and bad you know like it, it was mm-hmm. interesting to see um some of the tech skeptics that uh i follow were immediately skeptical um and some of the kind of i don't know uh not city boosters but uh you know people who were you know are into trying things uh were really excited about it so it was really interesting how even early on the th- sidewalk coming to toronto um, not divided people, but you know, people were in deci- decidedly different camps. A lot of yeah. them, anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a hot issue, uh, for sure. Like I've been seeing it in the news. Um, like you said, for two years, it's pretty regularly you'll see articles 
um, all across, you know, whether from Toronto Star or CBC or whatnot. Um, and, and, you know, I just want to be clear about one thing um, and just kind of get your take on this. So the official cancellation, uh, the reasons given were that it was an economic decision uh, because of the coronavirus, because of unprecedented economic uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in 2019, uh, their CEO, he went on TVO, uh, Dan uh, Doctrap, I believe, and he said, um, and I quote, he said, they would not cut and run, um, alluding to companies like Amazon. Um, you know, they would have the hard conversations with, you know, policymakers and citizens. Um, what What is your take on this? I know it might not be a clear answer if, you know, 100% economic, 100% other issues. Uh, but is this purely an economic decision? Is Sidewalk Labs, um, or are they cutting and running here? Yeah, I don't have inside information on that. But my speculation is um, it was kind of a cut and run, you know, especially when you say you're not going to cut and run. Um, and, you know, if anyone can weather the uh, this uh, coronavirus pandemic crisis, it's Google. You know, they have the deepest pockets in the world. Um, so my theory is uh, Toronto has a really, really long history of civic engagement, um, uh, concerned citizens rising up to oppose things um, or support things, um, and for better and for worse. Sometimes it goes both ways. Um, but you probably won't find a more formidable, maybe as formidable, but not a more formidable um, civil society in at least North America than Toronto um, in a long, you know, decades-long history of this sort of thing, stopping expressways in the early 1970s that were going to go through uh, the middle of the city. Um, and so it, that um, long heritage kind of like, um, <laughs> if there was any city that wasn't going to let sidewalk kind of just walk in and do what they want you know toronto was it and i wonder if was that too much trouble i know from uh sidewalk's perspective that the uh some of the resistance was actually they they liked it because it it was like a training ground like if if we if we can beat this in toronto or if we can you know negotiate uh on toronto terms you know we'll be able to go into other cities a lot easier um, but maybe Toronto was a little bit, you know, yeah, uh, maybe the resistance was, or, or it was just too much effort, you know, why not go to a city that, you know, you could just kind of walk in and do whatever you want. Um, but what you mentioned, the, the whole idea of cut and run, um, is interesting because th- this gets down to, for me, at least the crux of one of the cruxes of the, the problem that Google sidewalk wanted to sort of behave like a government, right? They wanted to plan this entire section of the city and kind of run all the systems, you know, from garbage pickup and um, uh, other kind of interesting environmental innovative things. Um, But when the going gets tough, a government doesn't leave. And if they do, you know, that's a that's a failed state, you know, so that's I think the fundamental I I think it really illustrated why or um, highlighted that um, the services that governments provide is, you know, they're in here for the long haul. They're not going anywhere. Whereas a company like Google, as rich as they are, can promise everything and, and will be here forever. We're your best friends. Um, but they can, you know, within an hour as the, of that announcement coming, they, you're gone. Yeah. Uh, no, that's super interesting. That's essentially mentioned that uh, there's a distinction between government and a company at the end of the day because they can, you know, get up and leave. Um, and you're just going back to some of the issues with, from the beginning, some of the topics that people were talking about. Um, so, the, you know, particularly one of the things that stood out to me was this issue of transparency. 
Um, and I want to get your take on this, you know, with, um, especially even if you want to explain the waterfront, uh, Toronto, how that works, like their relationship with the city, um, like, uh, you know, where they, where they are in the uh, legislative process, you know, are they a government body? Are they just an organization? They're private, that kind of thing. Um, and then where do Sidewalk Labs go wrong in how they dealt with the city and their elected council members? Uh, Waterfront Toronto started in the 90s. Um, I want to say late 90s. Uh, been a little fuzzy on the date. Um, and uh, the Waterfront in Toronto was a, you know, kind of industrial, deindustrialized place. It was very dirty. Um, apart from the kind of center part, right downtown, that was developed um, in the 80s a little bit and around Harbourfront. Um, it was mostly, a lot of it was, um, you know, like old railway lands and former industries. So it needed a lot of cleanup. It still does in certain sections and that work is ongoing. And Waterfront Toronto was a tripartite organization, government organization set up jointly between City of Toronto, Province of Ontario and the uh, federal government of Canada and each kind of contributed their funding to it. Um, so it was a really interesting organization that they had like these three levels of um, authority kind of to do stuff. Um, and in Toronto, there's a lot of cynicism around the waterfront. I think people are like, you know, from, and it goes back decades, you know, especially with older people, um, older people, whoever you want to find, <laughs> whoever has longer memories. Um, but, you know, the lake used to be dirty, right? You know, uh, Ontario, like Ontario had a bad reputation, like a lot of Great Lakes, uh, much, much cleaner now. Uh, you can swim in it, everything. Um, so the, the lake and the waterfront uh, have always kind of had this kind of taint to them. And the... Um, uh, the pace of redevelopment on the waterfront was slow, especially at first. Um, there were also a couple bad developments that happened before, so people think like bad things happen on the waterfront. Um, so anyway, there's all the cynicism around it, but Waterfront Toronto engaged in like a decade of um, community consultation and work, um, uh, getting buy-in from different organizations and residents in Toronto um, uh, for the plans that they had, and they developed that are still on the books, they're still, you know, going to happen, uh, not good, uh, that, that um, you know, a lot of people bought into and supported. Um, what was interesting when the Ford government, uh, oh, sorry, uh, Rob Ford was elected uh, mayor, one of the things uh, he and his brother Doug, um, or this might have been just Doug's um, idea, was the, the, the uh, Ferris wheel deal and that got a lot of press and that was there's going to be a, like a big mega mall or something on the waterfront um ferris wheel is not a terrible idea but it sort of became the the, the uh, figurehead for this bigger plan that was going to bulldoze all these earlier plans um and there was a kind of citizen revolt in toronto um and this uh, and uh the ford ultimately to make a long story short back down you know, okay, there's, no, there's no there's no Ferris wheel there. So it was one of the yeah. early between that and attacking the library. It was one of the uh, early um, uh, times that Rob and Doug Ford backed down from their you know agenda um, early on, and it, that was because and Waterfront Toronto did all this work for years. You know, people trusted them, and I think when Waterfront uh, when Sidewalk came in with these plans, and this is probably where Waterfront Toronto made a mistake. Um, that it didn't do the same amount of work. It all happened a lot faster. It felt like like the the 
the agreement between Waterfront Toronto and, and Sidewalk seemed murky. It wasn't as maybe transparent as it was, uh, but it made, it made people suspicious because it didn't have the same amount of uh, community work, endless, endless consultations and meetings and, and, th and that sort of thing. So I think that's kind of early on. And I know this, this is something that really bothered me. One of the few times I actually wrote about Sidewalk was um, there were a number of people in Toronto that kind of got on board Sidewalk, which is fine. Um, but the communication tone, um, uh, tone and content uh, coming out of Sidewalk that was often parroted by some of these kind of Toronto boosters was that nothing happened on the waterfront. You know, nothing's going to happen unless Sidewalk comes in and, and like, this is an opportunity we can't give up or we're still going to have this um, crappy waterfront, uh, which is not true, right? Stuff was happening. It was just happening slow because it's a democracy and because it relied on the market forces to come in and build condos and, and, and the rest of it. Um, so I think, I think it overrode uh, that community work, and that's when it's sort of like at least the communication line of sidewalk uh, and waterfront trying to sort of became untrustworthy. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and then also, I think along with transparency, um, you also mentioned the issue of privacy too, right? Because um, Google, a big tech company, yeah. um, I assume the data would be pretty valuable <clears throat> for whatever for whatever reasons, right? Whether it's um, you know, the collection of people's movements, garbage, snow, whatever, like, you know, all this crazy tech stuff going on. Yeah. Um, was there at any point, like, was it a major issue of the data or was it pretty understood that the data wasn't, wasn't going to be used by Google for what, whatever reasons? Um, or was it more of an open source kind of thing? They said it wouldn't be used. Uh, you know, they kept giving assurances that, but, but it, it never, it, at least it didn't seem uh, concrete. You know, it was still sort of... Um, hypothetical because it wasn't done yet um, but you think about it, like how does Google make their money like we have gmails we, for free right um, you know they're not giving it to us for free they scrape the, our emails for information um, why is Google involved in city building you know it wasn't about the real estate um, you know they could buy they could with their billions and billions of dollars they could become real estate moguls if they wanted to but it was about the data of how we move around the city you know knowing how a human operates throughout the day um, is incredibly valuable. What stores catch their attention, what this, what that. Um, so um, a lot of smart people who um, uh, are very dedicated to data privacy and these issues were ringing alarm bells. Um, uh, a group in Toronto called Block Sidewalk um, really kind of pushed that side of it, you know, and, they, and I think the, the assurances that Google was giving, Sidewalk was giving, um, you know, I, I don't know if it convinced enough people. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and I think even um, you've mentioned a couple of times as well that they weren't necessarily into the real estate or the property aspect of it, but more so the governance. Google wanted to run a city in a sense uh, without the other things that come along with governance typically, right? Yeah, Dealing with yeah. citizens and whatnot. Um, you know, but perhaps some people will say that private cities are good. Um, you know, if you run it like a business um, with each city marketing itself, providing X, Y, Z services or goods, you know, citizens ideally uh, would be choosing cities that align with their values, right? Um, and there are examples of this, you know, private cities aren't just a Toronto thing. Um, you know, Toyota is building a city in Japan. There's a Mustar city in the UAE, Songdo in South Korea, um, examples in Australia, Florida, you know, and sidewalk clouds as well, which is one of the bigger ones um, in the media, especially because it is Toronto after all. 
Um, what are your thoughts on this idea of charter cities or private cities? Um, and is that a realistic, um, is that something that could happen in the future more often with cities governing, you know, private cities and competing for citizens in a sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder, like, would, would a private city be worth living in? Like, would it be interesting? Would it be, like, one of the great things about cities is the chaos and the, um, uh, the layers of people and, and competing interests. And if you had a, if it was privately owned, you know, if decisions could come from the top and what would you do, what rights would you have as a citizen, all that stuff would need to be um, sorted out in a way. And there have been, there, even in the past, you know, there were interesting private cities in a way, like um, industrial towns, you know, like I'm from Windsor, Ontario, and Hiram Walker, the distiller of Canadian Club Whiskey, right on the river, on the Detroit River, had, there's Walkerville, which was sort of built by Hiram Walker, um, the, the company for the workers to live, and there were, you know, other cases around like that. But they were, but they ended up being kind of consumed by the bigger city that they were with, and they weren't truly, you know, private, private cities. Um, cities right now, like, they, they still compete, you know, even though we are, as democratic, you know, entities. City of Toronto has, you know, a, a department of, you know, economic, um, was not economic prosperity, but economic, economic development, you know, and they go on trade missions. So the mayor goes on trade missions to try to drum up, um, tech businesses especially, you know, come to Toronto, you know, we are the San Francisco of Toronto or whatever, you know, um, and so they, you know, they, they, they compete in their own way, even though they're democracies. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know if I'd, if I, I, I need to go, I've never been to a true, you know, private city, um, but would they be the interesting, chaotic, um, free, especially free places that, um, our uh, very um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? incomplete, uh, imperfect city is. Yeah, uh, for sure. And then also, I think um, just building on that too, right? Because a private city isn't—it's uh, not necessarily like its goal is profit. At the end of the day, if it's a private city, it's generated, is trying to generate as much profit as possible. Uh, so you have, essentially, you'll be building cities for the rich and a particular type of person, yeah. particular type of citizen. Uh, that's definitely uh, that's an interesting point, um, and it seems to me that there's kind of this struggle between uh, fairness and efficiency, where you have a private city which might be efficient because, uh, you know, the support of the private cities will often cite uh, issues of governance um, in cities like Toronto. You know, with the struggle between the bottom-up interests of the citizens, you know, and different groups and advocacy groups, and the top-down governance of the city and the decision makers. And this ongoing struggle uh, in practically every city around the world is for, you know, uh, supporters of private cities. That's a downfall of the city, of the current model of the city. Um, what's your take on that? Is there uh, some benefit to that? Kind of, you know, things get done a bit slower, but there's that constant kind of almost like a dance or tango between different elements. Um, and if so, what, what, what is that benefit? Yeah, you always hear from, like, there's always certain councillors or mayors in different cities, Toronto included, that say this, you know, we need to run the government like a business. Um, and, and maybe in some aspects, that's like, yeah, sure, like, you should have sound accounting practices and be able to budget and um, not totally go into a hole for everything. But um, if you ran it like a business, like, you'd never run buses 
to certain parts of the city that don't make, or subways and, and, and other transit things to parts of the city that don't make money, right? So you'd leave out a whole chunk of people. And who would those people be? They'd probably be you know, lower income people. Um, and, and so the government, like the services that a city provides, and cities are really about service delivery in many ways, um, it would not be a great business to be in, but, um, but people require it. And um, the city requires it to survive, which allows for other actual businesses um, to flourish. So, I mean, you always get that push and pull between, you know, um, different factions on city councils about that. But um, ultimately, this beast that we live in is not a business. Um, yeah, yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, and I think also that's a pretty good segue into cons- reconsidering, in a sense, uh, what we mean by smart city to begin with, right? Uh, because often in the case of sidewalk labs, especially, um, this means technologically very advanced. So whether it's, you know, garbage bins that have LED lights and close when they're full or sidewalks that heat up to melt snow, traffic lights that, you know, figure out the daily transportation patterns and so on and so on. Um, you know, I'm not a tech expert by any means, but, you know, all this cool tech that you hear of. Um, but let's look at the case of, you know, Keyside and Toronto Waterfront. Uh, I mean, sure, the wa- the garbage bins don't have Wi-Fi or anything, uh, but you did mention considerable changes in the last two decades. Um, can you explain uh, how the waterfront has become better in substantial ways for people living there? Uh, well, you look at uh, some of what's been built in the last 10 years, especially it kind of ramped up really quickly. Um, there are there's like whole new neighborhoods um, along along the along the lake. Um, a nice lakeside path that connects it all. Some really nice parks like Sherburn Common um, and a few others uh, that are so new that their name uh, falls out of my head, except for um, Corktown Common, which is really magnificent, built on a flood control berm at the mouth of the um, uh, Don River. Uh, now it's this lovely park with great views of downtown and this whole wetland. Um, and. A lot of like the smart city things that Google was proposing, uh, they could happen anyway. You know, we have all these local tech firms that, and or, or Canadian tech firms, or not even Canadian tech firms that could do this. You know, um, so if if Waterfront Toronto wanted to try these pilot projects, they could. Right? We didn't necessarily need Google to do them. Um, so all that stuff is still there. But the the whole term smart city, it's like one of those things that means everything and nothing. You know, you hear it thrown around. Um, and you see it, it's, it's like it became kind of a, a very sexy thing uh, because it's often associated with tech, I think, uh, that a sexy thing that a politician could say um, to seem like they're future thinking and um, it's nice to put on a sign. Welcome to, I, I go to Malta a lot to visit my dad uh, where uh, he lives and Malta had a, has a smart city program. Uh, I remember seeing the signs everywhere in Malta. Uh, smart city, smart city, over this way. And I went there and it wasn't built yet. Just like, it was like the word meant everything. Uh, but it, I don't know, to me a smart city, it doesn't necessarily have to be about technology. It can, but it's about you know, a city that can adapt and listen to the needs of the people and businesses in it. Um, you know, cities are sometimes slow at listening uh, and adapting and doing the right thing um, a smart city would would um, would would react uh, more intelligently whether it's a technological solution or some old-fashioned solution yeah that's that's interesting um, I mean even uh, just north of Toronto Markham you enter the sign says the tech capital of uh, Canada, Ontario I think tech capital of Ontario yeah. which is in- always interesting to me uh, seeing that almost every day 
But again, uh, they're branding they're branding themselves, so they're competing, right? They're like uh, new tech startups come up to Markham, don't go downtown Toronto. So it's yeah, we had the future home of Amazon sign on the Markham sign for a long okay. time. Uh, it didn't happen, but you yeah. know the sign was there for months and months after as well. Um, and yeah, it's interesting you mentioned uh, I guess kind of reevaluating what smart means um, because even looking at places in Toronto, like uh, like I've seen Toronto change in the last you know. Uh, maybe as a kid, you don't necessarily remember all the things and, you know, you don't really pay attention to it. Uh, but even in the last five, six years, I've seen, you know, uh, the city gets smarter without the tech aspect. You know, just two weeks ago, I was on the Brimley and they added bike lanes, you know, just two weeks ago. Um, and that's just an, in, you know, an infinitely smarter road for pedestrians and cyclists now uh, than it was before. Um, and there's no nothing, no LED lights or anything like that there. Um, so that's super interesting. Um, and you mentioned that, you know, cities today, even in a sense, are competing with one another for citizens. Um, and there's this issue of sometimes accessibility because you're trying to uh, attract capital, you're trying to attract businesses and whatnot. Um, and you also mentioned, I guess, the underserved parts of Toronto as well, where, you know, for example, in the Scarborough uh, doesn't have, you know, transportation isn't as good as it could be. Uh, and it's something that we've kind of dragged our feet on for uh, years and years. Um, so in the existing model as well, are there areas you think where things like accessibility and equity could improve uh, because there's this kind of desire to make the most money? Um, or is that not really a concern? Uh, it is a concern, not to everyone, but it should be a concern. Um, the equity part of it, um, you know, there's increasing, you know, the studies, the, the I think the most well-known is probably the three cities of Toronto uh, by a researcher. Cities Institute, Old Cities Institute, which was renamed um, at the University of Toronto, looking at how um, the middle class shrunk and the um, uh, lower income uh, population really grew, as did the, the the very top, right? And and that's an imbalance that can all the success that this city, Toronto, has enjoyed. Um, that has the potential to upend it, right? Um, if not, everyone is brought along on that that journey to wealth, um, things, you know, historically and badly, um, you know, if you have high youth unemployment, any city that has high youth unemployment, um, they have trouble, you know, when there's, when you have uh, a bleak future, you know, that's when you get civil unrest and that sort of thing. So the, the equity thing, it, uh, should be just even for selfish reasons rather than altruistic, uh, n never mind altruistic reasons, uh, um, that everyone deserves the same kind of chance. Um, just selfishly, you know, you don't want your city to be um, really unequal. Um, as well, accessibility, it's like kind of the whole right to the city thing. Um, you know, if the city is not designed in a way that uh, makes everyone, that allows everyone just, you know, physical access to it, but also just, you know, feeling comfortable in it and uh, feeling like it's theirs, feeling like they can walk down the street with the same amount of liberty and freedom as someone else. Um, and that's been proven in Toronto to be quite untrue, you know, just from something like um, police carding, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, who, uh, I've said this anecdote a few times, that it, writing a, 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 a column in the Star and elsewhere about exploring Toronto, um, I've explored the city in the middle of the night, um, walking down alleys, taking pictures of things, because it's kind of how I take notes often. I've never, ever been, you know, harassed by, uh, stopped by a cop. They pass and look and keep going, despite me looking, I, I, at least I think, behaving suspiciously. <laughs> yeah. You know, other people who are just, you know, uh, young men of color walking down the street, not 
doing stupid things like I'm doing will get stopped, right? Mm-hmm. So like that is a basic, you know, like w- how would that, the way that would change the, your relationship to the place you live in, right? Like, you know, like I, I can walk down the street and think it's sort of mine, right? Or, or it's comfortable, this is where I belong. Um, I think it would only take being stopped once arbitrarily like that to make that feeling of connection to the place evaporate. Um, so again, like even if you're if 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 it's not affecting you, selfishly, um, you want people who live in the city to feel like it's theirs to like contribute to it. And if the actual functions of the official city, in this case the police, um, is making people feel detached from it, um, that's not good for anyone. Yeah, for sure. Um, and you mentioned uh, the three cities report. Interestingly, that's. Um, I think it's Halchansky, Professor Halchansky, who he gave a guest lecture in one of my courses. And that's kind of where I went down this rabbit hole of urbanism and, you know, urban issues in Toronto. Uh, So it's interesting to mention that. And yeah, for sure, it's definitely, um, it's very eye-opening to see kind of the changes of Toronto. Yeah. And uh, what's interesting is that he made, he had a lot of maps in it, right? And you could really visualize where this was. Uh, What was interesting about the three cities is that the the mapping of that kind of lower income uh, increase in Toronto that mapping really overlapped nicely with where, say, Rob Ford's support was in 2010. Um, so there's a correlation between what's going on economically and socially in the city and how it manifests politically. And Rob Ford was a master of telling people, you, you've been left out, these fat cats, these shiny, shiny people downtown or whatever it was, creative class, or uh, he was better at um, articulating it. Um, he made people understand that, yeah, I, other, these people are having a better life in the city and we feel left out. I think that's what you mentioned, the Scarborough bad transit. You know, it's, it's hard to get around Scarborough. It's gigantic. If you fold Scarborough over the rest of the city, it almost goes to the end of Etobicoke. It's huge. Wow. Um, and so saying something like a, uh, a subway, everyone understands what a subway is like, despite it being, I think, a bad plan because it was tiny and it only hit a little bit of Scarborough. Um, can, saying a subway is something that people can kind of get behind because that makes sense um i don't know rob ford was by accident by design um he was <laughs> like a, a master communicator and he had this political magic uh, but it was interesting the way it overlapped with those three cities reports maps yeah and then even with the subway issue like the lrt um the eglinton lrt for example uh which was cancelled uh, i think just two or three weeks ago the bus lanes on eglinton uh interestingly followed the exact same route uh, yeah. of the lrt right which kind of goes to show uh, if these decisions were made, you know, a couple of years ago, construction would be well underway, you'd be, you know, pretty much close to being done um, instead of kind of delaying, delaying, and then having these band-aid solutions later on. Um, that's interesting you mentioned that. Um, and then also I wanted to, uh, in terms of the Three Cities Report too, right, um, you kind of see where there's, where the wealthy in Toronto are is where the best service is, as it is too, right? Um for example, just uh, in the recent news, kind of uh, in Richmond Hill, they were against these new apartments being built, right? Uh, these kind of mixed model housing. Um, and Richmond Hill is one of the areas I really wanted a subway line, right? So now you have these empty subway cars going north uh, into the you know suburbs of Toronto. Uh, but when it comes time to increase the density and increase housing, that's where you can kind of get the pushback, which is, I want to get your thoughts on that. You know, what do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, you had it in Scarborough, too. You saw some of the politicians who were gung-ho about the Scarborough subway, some of them are gone now, um, or at least not elected. Um, they're still around somewhere. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, when it came to 
will you upzone this area around the uh, around the subway station to for increased density? They were against the density, you know, for all the NIMBY not in my backyard reasons that these places do that. Um, so you get this out of whack thing, which Toronto sometimes has, of ha running subway, heavy duty subway, you know, like the heavy dutiest urban rail you can get, level of rail. Um, and the stops are surrounded by single-family homes. You like look out the Danforth. Um, still, the Danforth opened subway opened in 1966. Um, numerous subway stops from Broadview on down are really like one house up from the subway station is a single-family home mm -hmm. uh, with a front yard and backyard. Uh, that's wild, right? Um, and that was going to that will possibly repeat in Scarborough, and it will possibly repeat um, in Richmond Hill. So the 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 planning the transit planning and politics um, the the transit planning is very politically driven but then the politics doesn't drive what's needed to make the thing um, uh, a success later or make it worthwhile doing yeah I mean it seems to me at least like a lot of the uh, you know a lot of people supporting new subway lines and new transit lines um, you know and the ones that do end up being built are often the ones you know where the constituents are mostly uh, people that have their own cars that you know that drive to work currently want an easier way to get to work um, and they live in single you know detached homes and whatnot um, and never really the people who actually need the subway lines or the LRT or whatnot uh, which is interesting how that works in terms of who the city is for um, and you mentioned access to the city as well um, and kind of I guess tying it back to where we started uh, with you know the private public kind of tension um, so recently the plan for the community hub on Jane and Finch was cancelled. Um, so where do you think that went wrong? Is it just because we left it in the hands of Metrolinx? Is it lack of legislation? Um, or is it just, you know, one of those unfortunate things that kind of, you know, happens? Um, I think we don't have enough information exactly with Metrolinx. Um, I think I suspect and others that it's political, you know, like um, sell, sell this land that was dedicated for the um, Jane Finch Community Hub sell it for market value and it has, it has good market value um, and this is a provincial government that uh, is into such things um, so maybe it came that way and we don't know yet um, I suspect these things come out later um, as people people talk people, the Freedom of Information Acts are filed and you get emails and, and things but, but it kind of seems political because it was such a egregious flip-flop and the m messaging from Metrolinx um, that this is it was just like a whim of a of a bureaucrat that was operating uh, uh, with too much authority um, is is in contrast to like the actual planning you know like there were architectural renderings and meetings and um, and looking at the anger of the community um, and the anger of some of the organizations that have worked with Metrolinx and the one I'm thinking in particular is the uh, Toronto Community Benefits Network, um, which um, gets large construction projects uh, like the Eglinton LRT uh, to hire locally, so young people can find a way into the trades and this sort of thing if they don't have a family connection to it. It's actually like a really good thing uh, mm -hmm. for youth employment. Um, and there, they were running, they were upset about this too. Um, so when you've when you've pissed off the community that. You were you should have had trust that should have uh, had your trust or trust in you, um, and pissed off some of your um, allies uh, organizations. You know something something is definitely wrong there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
And I know this is uh, purely speculative, uh, just because at this point it is hard to tell exactly what happened and what went on behind the scenes. But often for a project like this, where a company will make a promise to you know do something for the community, uh, what is the reason behind that? Is it for a concession from the city for building? Is it to get better, uh, you know, get better treatment? Um, you know, just what's the thought process behind a promise like this one? Often, you know, for these large mega projects, um, there'll be it's not just about the rail line, it's about how does this, you know, this is going to be highly disruptive to our community um, and, uh, and and there's people who probably don't want it generally and, and so like there's all these concessions are made like well, you'll, it'll come with this and it'll come with this, uh, sometimes these things are parks and other community improvements um, and in this case it was, you know, a, a community hub, a community centre in a part of Toronto that is underserved for, for those sorts of things. So it was an especially, I think, um, valuable, uh, worthwhile thing to dangle in front of a community, uh, which I think also speaks to why the outrage is so um, profound. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I think that's pretty much uh, what I had for you today. Uh, you know, I appreciate okay. uh, you coming on. Uh, this is actually the first episode I'm recording, so it was oh, wow. you know a new experience for me as well. You're smooth, uh, good. Yeah, thank you. Um, and maybe just to end, um, I'll have you kind of just let the audience know what you have going on, you know, where they can keep up with your work, anything like that. Um, what am I doing? It's the summer of 2010. Uh, it's 2020, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> the pandemic is making time go backwards, not just slow down. <laughs> yeah, we'll be um, a 2020 on loop for repeat forever. Yeah, I write a column in the Toronto Star, a weekly column in the Toronto Star about the city. Uh, sometimes it goes in Saturday, sometimes Monday, wherever uh, it fits. And uh, I'm one of the editors at Spacing Magazine, spacing.ca, so people can go there and see um, more coverage of how our city is becoming. And uh, I teach, getting ready to teach online at U of T in the fall. Uh, which is a little daunting. I'd rather walk down the street and see everyone in real life like everyone else. <laughs> well, there you have it, folks. That's it from us this week. Be sure to check out Sean's work. You can keep up with him on Twitter and Instagram at Sean McAuliffe. Also, be sure to follow City and Crumpets on Twitter at City Crumpets to get the latest updates on speakers, episodes, and more content. That's it from us this week. Thank you and goodbye. This is a project funded by the School of Cities at the University of Toronto.